Jesus, that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, for us, and that he has been raised from the dead and that we can have new life too. Would you please speak to us as we look into your word, as we consider the resurrection, as we glorify you. And we do pray that you would receive glory in all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're doing a four-part sermon series here, as I mentioned. The first part that we looked at last Sunday was on creation, how the idea that creation reveals its creator, that you need not look any further than the stars or the mountains or a lake or whatever it might be and know that there must be a God who created all of this. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us. But some people might wonder, well, which God created? Is it the God of the Bible? Is it the gods of Hinduism? Is it the flying spaghetti monster? Have you ever heard of that one? There's a religion. It's called Pastafarianism. It, I think it's a religion that was made up in jest. I think they're, they're mocking those of us who believe in God. But they came up with this fake flying spaghetti monster. Is he the one who created the universe? Is there a way that we can know which God created? Has, let me ask it this way. Has the God who created the universe left us any evidence specifically as to who he is and how we can know him? Well, I think the answer is yes. And there's one powerful thing that happened about 2,000 years ago that stands as proof of that. It's the resurrection. Now, think of it this way. The powerful God who created the universe would surely be able to pull off a miracle such as the resurrection. Surely, that kind of a miracle would not be beyond him. If he had the power to create the universe, then of course he has the power to raise someone from the dead. And here's something really cool about the resurrection. God left evidence of it in plain sight as proof for our faith. Now, I chose my words carefully there. Proof. I believe that the resurrection stands as proof even for our faith. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul was preaching to a bunch of non-Christians in Athens, Greece. And this was about 20 years after the resurrection and hundreds, maybe even uh, over a thousand miles away from where the resurrection happened. So he's preaching to people who were unbelievers. They didn't see the resurrection and it's years later. And look at what Paul said to them as he's talking about God raising Jesus. He said, He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, that's interesting to me because it wasn't just proof for them in Athens that day. It says there it's proof to all men. Now, that word proof in that verse is the word that's often used in the Bible for faith. So here's the idea. Even though we didn't get the privilege of seeing the resurrection or even of seeing the risen Jesus after he was alive again, his resurrection still stands today as proof for us, as something that can bolster our faith. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead shows us which God to believe in. It's kind of interesting. I think Pastor Josh mentioned this, that in the Old Testament, people were told to look at the miracles that God did in bringing them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the promised land. For us, we're supposed to look at the the miracle of the resurrection, how God got us out of slavery to death and sin, and how he brings us into eternal life. The theologian Craig Blomberg calls the resurrection of Jesus the very center of the Christian faith. And he says, and it's kind of fun, you kind of get to do this with the resurrection, you get to make puns about death, so here's one. He says, Christianity lives or dies with the claim of Christ's resurrection. Which I think is, he's right on. That 
If the resurrection happened, Christianity is true. Now, I like to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead sets apart Jesus not as one God among many, not as just a valid option, but it sets him apart as God the Son, part of the Trinity who we will worship for the rest of eternity. And if the resurrection really happened, it is all the evidence we need to give our lives fully to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And let me say that again because it's important for where we're going today. If the resurrection really happened, it's all the evidence we need to give our lives fully to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So did it happen? Is there evidence to believe that the resurrection really happened or is it something more like a fairy tale? Is the resurrection based on solid historical fact or is it like any of the other stories and any other religion just made up? Josh McDowell wrote, The resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon people, or it is the most important fact of history. So we're looking at something that's important today. We need to figure out whether it's true or not. Now, I believe it's true. And the point of what we're doing here today is to show you that there is good reason to believe that it's true, and not just that there is good reason to believe it, but it's something that we should base our lives on. Because if the story of the resurrection isn't true, then we have wasted our time following Jesus. The Apostle Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we should be pitied more than all men if we claim to follow someone who has risen from the dead, but if he weren't actually risen from the dead, then we should be pitied. So which one is it? Is there good reason to believe in the resurrection? Well, again, I say absolutely yes. So what we're going to do today is we're first going to look at a passage in the Bible that explains to us the resurrection, and then we're going to look at a list of reasons why this story makes sense of the world that we live in. Now, just a quick note, in the book that I'm giving you today, there's a, another section that I add. I add a section in there where I explain some of the alternative theories, some, some reasons that people would give why they don't believe in the resurrection, and I show how none of them can support the weight of their own conclusions. But we're not going to do that uh, today in the sermon just for the sake of time, but uh, it's in the book for you to read. So like I said, first we're going to look at a passage which explains the resurrection, and it does so as part of a larger story called the Gospel. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. And it's a neat passage. Um, when we get to verse 3, through verse uh, maybe 7 or so, it, it looks like what we have here is an early Christian creed. So you know what a creed is? A creed is something that people would recite together to remind us of truth. Um, you might do this at Rotary or uh, Kiwanis or wherever, or we have the things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Well, this here in 1 Corinthians 15, it might very well be what the first Christians started to say together to remind themselves of the truth of the resurrection. Okay, so I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll read verses 1 through 8. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, 
most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So we're going to jump to verse 3 right away. We'll get back to verses 1 and 2 at the end of my sermon. But in verse 3, we're told that the gospel is of first importance. And I agree with Paul here. The gospel is of utmost importance. In that verse, Paul explains that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I want to look at both of those phrases there first. Christ died for our sins. The Bible is very clear in this, and I hope you know this, that we have all sinned and that by our sin we had all earned a penalty. And that penalty is the penalty of death. And it's not just physical death such that our bodies would die. It is that but it would also have been a spiritual and eternal separation from God unless God stepped in and changed it because there was nothing that we could do to change it. I think so many people assume that that we can go to God on Judgment Day and, and maybe have some sort of discussion with Him like, hey God, my sin wasn't that bad. What could I do to make it up to you? That's not how it works. There was nothing that we could do to make this up to God. It's no small deal. We, we all, by our actions, had shown rebellion against God. He had a path for us, and every single one of us rebelled against him and went our own way. But God changed the situation when he sent Jesus to die for our sins. He took our penalty. We had earned death. Christ died for our sins. And that alone is something that we should be eternally grateful for. But then let's look at that next phrase there where it says, according to the scriptures. Now, for those of you that are looking to become uh, better students of the Bible, it's questions like this that you should be able to answer. Where do the scriptures, so we're talking now about the Old Testament, where, where does the Old Testament tell us that the Messiah would die for our sins? Can you think of where the answer might be to that? Well, I think the best place, did I hear somebody say Isaiah? Yeah. Does anybody want to guess a chapter? I hear, I hear lots of mumbling, but... Uh, <laughs> 53, I heard somebody say it. Good, good, very good. Isaiah 53 is the place to go for this. About 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah prophesied what the Messiah would do, and in verses 5 and 6 it says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I love those verses. God told us that he would do this, that he would send someone to pay the price for our iniquity, for our sin. And he sent Jesus to do just that. Then getting back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, it says that Jesus was buried. Why was Jesus buried? Because that's what you do with dead people. And remember, Jesus was a human being. Yes, he was God, but he was also 100% human. And as a human being, he died. So he was wrapped in burial clothes and placed in a tomb. People mourned. It was a sad deal. But that is not the end of the story. So often when we talk about death, we talk about it as an end. I want to challenge you on that. Don't talk about death as if it's an end. It's not an end for any one of us, and it certainly wasn't the end of the story for Jesus. Because as it says in verse 4 there, Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The Old Testament prepares us for this. We just looked at some verses in Isaiah 53. Well, the, the rest of Isaiah 53 tells us how Jesus 
after his death would do things that only living people can do. Things like seeing and prospering and receiving the spoils of victory. Another Old Testament passage that prepares us for the resurrection would be Psalm 16. So Isaiah 53, Psalm 16. You might just want to put those in your memory bank to to say God told us ahead of time that he would do this. Jesus also Excuse me. Jesus also told us ahead of time, a bunch of times actually, that he would die and that he would be raised again, and he even specifically mentioned the three days in between his death and resurrection. He prophesied it many times. One of those is in Mark 8:31, where he told specifically who would kill him and that he would rise again after three days. Jesus also compared himself to Jonah. You're probably familiar with the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, how Jonah was swallowed by a great fish and was inside the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Well, Jesus had a very similar ordeal with death. But, just as Jonah came out alive, so Jesus also came out alive. Now, some people say that the disciples made up the story of Jesus' resurrection. Have you ever heard that one? They would say that Jesus was just a good man and a good teacher, but the disciples ruined it by making up all this stuff about him rising from the dead. Well, that's not at all the case. From what I've just shown you, the story of the resurrection comes from the Old Testament, and it comes directly from the lips of Jesus himself. Then let's move on to verses 5 through 8. In those verses, we get a fairly lengthy list of people who saw Jesus alive after he died. First in verse 5, it says that Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Peter was one of the apostles, and the twelve refers to the the group of twelve apostles, even if Judas was no longer part of that group after he betrayed Jesus. Those who followed Jesus most closely, therefore those who would be sure to be able to recognize him after he was raised from the dead, it's to those people that Jesus showed himself alive again. And these are the same people who wrote large sections of the New Testament. They didn't make up a story. They saw with their own eyes the risen Jesus. But it wasn't just within that group, because maybe a person could say, well, maybe, maybe those 12 minus 1 apostles just got themselves together in a room and they made up this story that, that Jesus was dead, but they made up a story and then spread that story around. Well, that's not the case, because look what it goes on to say here in verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I think Paul adds that part about most of whom are living because it's, it's like he's saying as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians about 20 years later, saying, you could go and find those people. You can go and talk to them. Ask them what they saw, and they will tell you, we saw Jesus alive. More than 500 of them. And then it's interesting what we see in verses 7 and 8 because we we learn of two people there who saw Jesus alive again, James and Paul. And it's interesting because those two people were at first unbelievers. When Jesus died, James and Paul did not believe in Jesus. Paul, in fact, started out, you know this story, right? He started out persecuting those who believed in the risen Jesus. So what changed their minds? Seeing the risen Jesus changed their minds. They started out as skeptics. They ended their lives proclaiming the gospel message and the message of the resurrection as far as they could. You can read about Paul's change of heart in Acts 9 if you would like. So taken as a whole, this story in 1 Corinthians 15 is a very powerful story. 
and, and I believe that it's true. I believe that there are a bunch of eyewitnesses who gave us their story, and their story all comes together to tell us the story of how God brought Jesus back from death. What I want to do now is I want to address this from either a skeptic's or a seeker's point of view. I want us to be able to look at this story of the resurrection and say, is there good reason to believe what the Bible says here? Now, I believe the Bible. I believe that every single word of the Bible is true. But what about those people who would question that? Is there some way that we could look at the story here and look at it in such a way that say, yes, it actually lines up with what happened in history in such a way that we can even see it or maybe even verify it in some way today? So for the second part of my sermon, I want to give you six reasons why I think it makes really good sense to believe in the resurrection. And the first one is that Jesus' life prepared us for his resurrection. Now, I've already mentioned this a little bit, but many times Jesus told his followers ahead of time that he would not only be killed, but also that he would rise again. I read Mark 8.31. I showed you that one already. Uh, let's look at another one now. In John 2.19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And the people thought he was talking about the temple building. But just two verses after this, we read that Jesus was in fact talking about his body. So he was, he was predicting the resurrection. And, and it's not just what Jesus said about the resurrection. Think also what Jesus taught when Jesus went around teaching truth about God, people looked at him and they were amazed at him. Do you remember what they said about him? He teaches as one who has authority. Not like the other teachers who are teaching us. Jesus' authority came from God himself. And Jesus also did all these other miracles, changing water into wine, raising people from the dead, healing people. All of those things that Jesus did before he died were meant to point ahead to his power to be able to be raised from the dead. But even still, as he was dying, then people wondered if Jesus would save himself as he saved others. To many, his death came as a shock. How could this miracle-working man be killed on a cross like that? Well, in hindsight, it's clear. His death was necessary, but as we sing in one of our songs, death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him from rising again. Jesus told us so ahead of time. Jesus was raised from the dead. Second reason to believe that in, in the resurrection, the apostles' lives were powerfully changed. To me, this one was really helpful in my early walk with God because many of you have probably heard the story, which I mentioned already, that some people would say that the disciples just made up this part about the resurrection. And I, I wondered, like many people do, if we should trust what the apostles wrote about Jesus. Um, again, some people say that Jesus was just a good teacher, but not God. They, they say that the disciples made up the stories of the miracles, and especially they made up the, the story of the miracle of the resurrection. But if you look more closely, you see a much different story. You see the lives of men which were dramatically changed. Remember, what were the disciples doing when Jesus was killed? They were hiding in fear of their lives. It says later on that they were meeting in a locked room for fear. They were scared that the same thing that happened to Jesus was going to happen to them. So what changed? What, what changed that group of scared followers 
into a group of bold witnesses who went to the ends of the earth as far as they could to proclaim this message and to continue to proclaim it until almost all of them died. In fact, history tells us, if you take Judas out of the equation, history tells us that of the remaining apostles, all but one of them were killed for their faith and the one who wasn't killed, John, maybe had it harder than any of them as he was persecuted. Seeing the resurrected Jesus changed them. And it wasn't just those followers as if we could just say that uh, maybe they convinced themselves and just started spreading this message. Remember, there were those other two people, James and Paul, who were at first unbelievers. What changed the Apostle Paul, for example, from somebody who persecuted Christians to being somebody who joined their ranks and traveled all around spreading this message? Again, it wasn't like these apostles merely thought that Jesus was alive but didn't have any evidence. It says in Acts 1-3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. This wasn't a group of people who were deceived or who were hallucinating. That's what some people have tried to suggest, that the apostles were hallucinating or that they just really wanted Jesus to be alive so they made up this story. Well, that doesn't make sense of what we read right here in Acts 1-3, nor does it make sense of what we see when Jesus was ascended. Uh, there, were, there were angels there. Who, so picture this. Jesus ascends into the sky, and the angels tell them he's going to come back in the same way. You can't make that stuff up. And the apostles, to their dying day, proclaimed the message that they saw Jesus alive after his death. And I think it's a really powerful testimony. They spoke with, touched, and ate with Jesus after his resurrection. This isn't some cult in which the leader of the cult can't keep the promises that he's given to his followers. The apostles knew for certain that Jesus fulfilled his promise of the resurrection. In the case for Christ, Lee Strobel quotes J.P. Moreland as saying, However, the apostles were willing to die for something they had seen with their own eyes and touched with their own hands. They were in a unique position not to just believe Jesus rose from the dead, but to know for sure. That's where the story of the resurrection of Jesus comes to us from. It came from what Jesus had told us before his death, and it comes from people who saw him alive after his death. The apostles were certain of it, If it were a lie, they would have had many chances to recant, but that's not at all what they did. They went to their graves proclaiming the message that Jesus is alive again. Third reason we can believe in the resurrection. The tomb really was empty. To crush this young, small movement of Christianity as it was beginning, all it would have taken was to find the dead body of Jesus. If the resurrection story was a lie, finding the dead body of Jesus, here's another pun, would have been the final nail in the coffin. Thank you for groaning. That's what I was going for. Now, there are lots of good reasons to believe that the tomb was empty. For one, no one ever found the body. The Jews and the Romans both had ample reasons to find this body. Christianity was starting to cause a problem, and they would have loved to have found the dead Jesus and say, hey, look, he's still dead. Don't follow him. But they never found that. And you know another really good reason to believe that the tomb was empty? It's from the people who sent him to his death. 
In Matthew 27 and 28, we see that the Jewish leaders who sent Jesus to his crucifixion were the ones who remembered Jesus' words about rising from the dead. It's kind of ironic because Jesus' followers didn't even really remember that at the time. But one of the Jewish leaders said, hey, we heard that guy say that he was going to rise again. Let's make sure that his followers don't come and steal the body and pretend that he's alive. So what did they do? They posted a guard at the tomb. Did their plan work? No. Those guards had no power to stop the angel who came and rolled the stone away. But then what happened? When the tomb was clearly empty, the Jewish leaders convinced those guards to make up a story about how the apostles came and stole the body. But what's interesting there, what are they acknowledging? Even as they're spreading this lie, what are the Jewish leaders acknowledging? The tomb is empty. There's no body of Jesus to be found. No dead body of Jesus to be found. The only Jesus that was found was an alive Jesus whom over 500 people saw. And by the way, the, the Jews and the Romans had good reason to squash the Christian movement if they could. The apostles, all they stood to gain from it was death or persecution. To me, this sets them, the apostles, apart as credible eyewitnesses. And again, they were the ones who would know for sure. And it's, it's interesting. <laughs> to, to come up with some other story, you'd have to say that the apostles were lying. Well, um, what story did the apostles tell after the resurrection? They told the story of how we should follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. What did Jesus say? He said we shouldn't give false testimony. The, the apostles themselves came up with other verses saying that we shouldn't lie to our neighbors. So we, are we to believe that this group of liars went about proclaiming a story that says that we shouldn't lie and then uh, carried that lie until they were killed for it? It just doesn't make any sense. One theologian said that this theory would be morally implausible to think that the apostles would carry out that lie like that. It makes much more sense to believe that the tomb really was empty and that the followers of Jesus saw him alive. Number four, this one is more spiritual than historical, but it, I think it's a powerful point. The resurrection makes sense of the character of God. And I have three things that I want to show you here. First, God is the God of life. God does not want us to face eternal death. And perhaps the best place to go for this is maybe the most famous verse in the New Testament, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God does not want us to be dead forever. He is the God of life. That's what the resurrection shows us. Second, God is a holy God. The fact that Jesus was put to death should be a reminder for us that we all faced a death penalty because in our unholiness, we offended the holy God. And I don't want us to be people who take our sins lightly. I want us to be people instead who recognize that our sin was so bad that the only way to take care of our sin problem was for God to send his son to die on the cross. Our sin is not something that should be, just be swept under a rug. It should be dealt with, and the only way to deal with it is in the death of the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ. So when we sin, let us repent quickly. Let's be thankful for the forgiveness that comes from Jesus, from a holy God. And then third, the God, we, we learn from the resurrection that God is the God of love. God didn't want us to stay dead. He saw us fall into our sin, but he didn't want us to stay there. He, he could have said, it's your fault. 
Instead, he sent Jesus for us. Why? Listen to 1 John 4, 9-10, which says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. A few verses later in that chapter we read, We love because he first loved us. So what we see in the resurrection is a God who loves us so much that he didn't want us to stay dead, but he did what was necessary to make us holy so that we don't have to keep on offending the holy God for the rest of eternity. Instead, we can live with him. We can have salvation. And in this, the way I like to say this is, this world will not make sense unless you understand the cross. Sin and evil will not make sense unless you understand the cross. But neither will love or justice or mercy. But when we look at the cross, all of those things come into view and we learn who God is. So we learn that all through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Fifth point, the life of Jesus left an impact. Currently, there are over 2 billion people on our planet who claim to believe in the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, where did that come from? Well, if you look back at the beginnings, what you see is a man who was born in the backwoods of a smaller nation underneath the rule of a much more powerful nation. And, and even the religious leaders, most of them of his day, didn't believe in Jesus. So how did this man make such an impact? Well, the answer has to be that he spoke powerfully, that he started to do miracles that caused people to start to wonder who he was. And the best answer is that this same man told us that he would die and rise again. In fact, I don't, think, I don't think that Jesus could have left such an impact in this world had he not risen from the dead. I don't, I don't think that just on good teachings alone, if, if he didn't rise from the dead, I don't think he would have made the impact that he did. This is no legend or myth, and, and I mention these things in the book, but whether you believe it or not, you have to see that the story of Jesus has left a huge impact in our world, and the best way to, to describe why it happened is because he actually rose from the dead. But then I have one more point that's really important, one that will stand as solid proof for you. And I, and I didn't put this one in my book. If, there, if I do a second printing of it, it's going to be in there. But the sixth reason is that you can know Jesus. And I do mention this in chapter 4 of my book. That's what chapter 4 is about. But I think that personally knowing Jesus will stand as proof for us that he is alive again. And and here's how this one works. We're not talking about some historical figure like George Washington or Christopher Columbus here. I'm not suggesting that you can know them personally today. That would be strange. But there's something different about Jesus He is God the Son. And when we come to believe in him, the Bible tells us that he takes up residence in us. Here's Jesus' invitation in Revelation 3.20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It's a relationship with Jesus that is described there. Similarly, the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians 3.16 and 17 that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. So there is this internal testimony inside of us then when we come to know Jesus that we know that we have a relationship with the one who has defeated death. He lives in us. And this confirmation will happen in your heart as you keep walking with Jesus. 
as you follow him, as you, as you meet with God in his word, as you pray, as you're involved in fellowship with other believers, you will have this inner testimony inside your heart that you have eternal life because Jesus is alive again. Okay, so there you have it. We've walked through a passage which explains the resurrection and we've looked at six good reasons to believe that the resurrection actually happened. But in conclusion, I want you to do something more. I don't want us to stop at just knowing these facts about the resurrection. I mentioned that I wanted to get back to the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go there now. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Five things about this gospel message, about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. First, it's to be preached. That's what Paul was doing. For those of us who know this message, we should proclaim it to other people. Second, the gospel is to be received. To be received. This is where faith comes in. If there are any of you out there today who are wondering if you've ever received Jesus, here's a great verse for you on that. Romans 10.9 That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can make that confession in your heart right now before God. You can even make it with your mouth if you want to. If you believe in the resurrection and confess that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. We are to receive this message in our hearts by faith. And then third, we are to take our stand on this gospel message. That's what it says at the end of, of verse 1. We are literally there. We are to own the gospel by holding on to it. We are to keep living according to the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, Paul says that we have believed in vain. That's what he says at the end there. Um, two more things about the gospel. Verse 2, it's the gospel that saves us. We all had earned a death penalty. We're saved by believing in the gospel message. And then finally there, uh, it talks about holding firmly to this word. Holding firmly. Let's not be like those people who say they believe in Jesus, but then don't live their lives according to it. Let's not be those people who hear the gospel message, but then put it on a shelf and go on and live our own lives the way that we want to. We are to walk every day in the power that God gives us because Jesus is alive again. One of my favorite verses on that is Romans 6.11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. He took away the power of sin. We are not to live according to the pattern of sin anymore. Instead, we are to live according to the pattern of resurrection and new life. And in Ephesians 1, Paul prays for us there that we would understand the power at work in our lives. I'd encourage you to read Ephesians 1. I think I'll send out an email later this week with some of these passages in it. But in Ephesians 1, Paul prays that we would understand the power at work within us. And he goes on to describe that power. He says that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So think about this. God can supply you with that kind of power in your life right now. Is there something going on in your life right now that's difficult? Maybe there's some sin that you're stuck in. Maybe there's a relationship that's gone south. Maybe there's some tragedy that you're dealing with, something that's sad, something that's maybe even consuming you. Is it too hard for God? For the God who raised Jesus Christ 
from the dead? Is it too hard for him? Can he help you with your sin, with your sorrow, with your difficulty? Of course he can. That's why the apostle prayed that you would know the power at work within you, the power that's like his mighty strength, which he worked when he raised Christ from the dead. That power is at work within us right now. I want you to think about that. We're going we're gonna to struggle as we go from here. As, as we leave these doors today, maybe it's not going to be today. Maybe in God's blessings, it's not even going to be this week. But sometime, a struggle is going to come for you. And I want you to stop and think the next time that struggle comes and know about the resurrection power at work in you. Because Jesus is alive again, we have new lives to live. It's not just the kind of life that we can live in our own power. Why would we do that when we have that kind of resurrection power at work within us? Because Jesus is alive again, we have new lives to live. God revealed the risen Christ to us so that we would believe in him and so that we would live with him for the rest of our lives, every part of the rest of our lives, because of who Jesus is. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that in your love you sent him to die for us. And Jesus, we praise you that you went the full distance of death on the cross for us and resurrection from the dead, showing your power. We pray that we would not only receive, but also continue to believe. And that we would hold firmly to this gospel message that we would live according to the truths of who you are, God. So would you please work your mighty power in us. Help us as we go from here, as we, as we go into daily life, as we go into our struggles. Help us to remember the power at work within us. The power you give us to live the kinds of lives you want us to live. And may we give you honor and glory as the God who saved us from death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.